You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Welcome again to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. You might notice something a little different about the intro music. I'll get to that in one second. Um, As always, I am your host, Danny Anderson, and I teach English here at Mount Aloysius College in Pennsylvania. Uh, And I also teach some film classes. And this semester, I had the pleasure, the great pleasure, of teaching the wonderful John Carpenter film, They Live, in a science fiction film class. Uh, And so first of all, that leads to the opening number today. In doing some research about the film, I stumbled across this really great punk band from Jersey called They Live! Exclamation Point, all spelled out. Uh, And they take not only their name, but their look and song material from the subject of today's show, They Live. Special thanks to those guys for letting me use their song, Formaldehyde Face. Yes, somehow Phil Spector finds his way into this, um, but uh, uh, it's a great little band, and, I, I, and I'm really happy to have discovered them, and it's really nice of them to let me use their song uh, for this show. I'm going to put some links to their material, their Facebook fade page. There's a, uh, a live album that they have online that you can listen to. <clears throat> if you go to the show notes, um, either connected to your iTunes, uh, whatever interface, or if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you can find the show notes to all these things, and I think... I think in doing some weird research or research about this, there's a weird link. I think the drummer is also in the band Crazy in the Brains, who has uh, provided some opening music uh, for us in the past. And so it's just a weird confluence of uh, of, uh, of events there. But I'm really grateful for those guys. I hope they enjoy the show uh, since they obviously love this uh uh, this movie as much as I do or probably more so even and they go on stage with white t-shirts with uh, subliminal messages scrawled on them like no you know no com- no whatever you know if you watch the movie you'll see it um, so uh, and as always if you haven't done so please go to iTunes and do leave a review which I promise to leave out on air or read out on air uh, bleeping out all your profanity of course uh, and also visit and click on that like button on our Facebook page because that's become a nice little hub for conversation that kind of spins out of our shows. And I'd love to keep that going. A lot of our shows are coming out of conversations about previous shows now. And so um, I'm hoping that um, continues. Um, And I want to send a special thanks to um, uh, Adam Sorber out there uh, for private reasons. I'm just going to thank him profusely. And he is what I'm going to just refer to as the curator from now on. So he knows what I'm talking about. Adam, thank you very much. Um, and now to my co-host. <laughs> You've, I've had Carter Stepper on here before. Um, we've talked about science fiction uh, quite a lot uh, in the past, and he's been on several episodes of this show. So Carter, how you doing? 
I'm doing great, Danny. Uh, thanks for having me on the show again. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm doing okay. We're out of the semester here. I'm kind of becoming human again and uh, and uh, getting some of my energy back. Although pollen season is upon us, so that's uh, if I, both to you and the the listener. If I start wheezing and hacking, uh, just bear with me for a second. I'll, I'll work through it. But um, so Carter, uh, somehow. I contacted you. I'd made some Facebook post about something about this movie and you commented about how much you love this movie. And I do remember some months back you asking to do some show about John Carpenter. Uh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so here it is. Uh, we're going to do a, a, a show about John Carpenter who we'll talk quite a lot about today. Um, but uh, just real quickly. So we're talking about they live, which re- was released in 1988. Um, and uh, we're going to spoil the movie. It's 30 years old, so it shouldn't be uh, – uh, there's not really that much to spoil. It's kind of a bare, thin plot. You've got this uh, wandering construction worker who has no name. Uh, his name is listed in the credits as Nada, which just literally means nothing. John Nada. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, he's never referred to as any by any name in the, in the film itself. And, uh, and so we are uh, introduced to him as this wandering construction worker through this kind of rece- 80s recession. And he finds these sunglasses that reveal to him these subliminal messages and all the advertising around us, as well as the um, uh, reality that half of the population seemingly are space aliens. And uh, he sees their skull faces. And that's how he knows who's human and who's an alien pulling the strings of, uh, of humanity here. Uh, and then he recruits some friends to try and uh, take down the, uh, the cabal. So that's basically the plot of the movie. Um, Carter, what makes this movie so darn fun, despite all the seriousness behind it? Oh, boy. Um, It's what probably makes all of John Carpenter films so fun, despite what they're they're talking about. Um, His films are always, with maybe the exception of Big Trouble in Little China, they're always intended to be somewhat serious. Yeah. But but they're serious in this really, um, oh, gosh. I don't want to use the word swashbuckling, but that's kind of what it feels like. There's always these, the heroes are always the, the classic, they're, they're, they're parodies of a classic action figure actually with the one liners and the over the top action. And, um, sometimes a lot of gore. Um, and I think honestly, he carpenter for me really just ties together this, that sort of like pulp, style of filmmaking with serious messages and he just combines them really well in a way that um, makes it both kind of lowbrow and um, lending itself to a serious message all the same time it's a little um it's a little punk maybe uh, would be the way to put it yeah he's definitely got a diy aesthetic i think this do-it-yourself aesthetic and in the, i mean he does the, the the scores for most of his movies um and there he kind of has this troop of regulars that are appearing in lots of his movies uh keith david who you probably know from his other movie the thing um who's uh-huh. probably the alien at the end of that movie um although yep. it's a little you know it's left open to question um but he's in this movie as not as partner and friend and mm-hmm. um and so yeah he has this kind of and he uses the same producer uh quite a and lot kurt russell is everywhere kurt and- russell <laughs> <laughs> Except for this film, he's everywhere else. Yeah, Kurt Russell is, is a is a longtime collaborator, and uh, and so he does have this kind of auteur um, 
way to, that he goes about his business. It's a very kind of singular vision. He writes the scripts. He he directs them. There's a kind of a minimalism to his films uh, in that they don't seem like over-directed. You're not like blown away with like amazing camera movements or anything like oh. that. Um, he depends. But, but it gives a really good edge to him, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, absolutely. And he depends He so much on um, suspense. I mean, obviously Halloween uh, is the progenitor of so many great you know, of, a, of an entire genre. Halloween almost is singularly responsible for all of the slasher movies that we see after it. And it doesn't really look like any of them in that it's kind of muted in its violence. And it's all just about suspense and people ducking behind bushes in a distance and, and still cameras that just, uh, and so he's really kind of a master of minimalism, I think, and, and, and as a filmmaker. And um, <clears throat> now but that style is undercut or added added to that style this time is this over the top professional wrestling aesthetic, right? Because the yes. uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper is the star of this yeah. uh, of this movie, right? And that and it, it's hilarious to watch him. And, and it, it, this film is is particularly interesting because it's not um, some of his films are more straightforwardly serious, but with you know the one liners and things like yeah. Escape from New York, sure, um, or. Um, of uh, even something like more, more recent, like vampires, yeah. although James Wood is, you know, <laughs> Prince of darkness, you know? Yeah. You know, right. Right. Um, but this one in particular is just, <clears throat> is just sort of cheesy enough in terms of premise yeah. that, that the professional wrestler, um, <laughs> Roddy Piper in the role just fits almost perfectly for what he needs him to do. Yeah. Uh, as a character. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and yeah, and that's so much of what makes this fun is the, the, the importation of what works in professional wrestling. Um, the one liners, the oh, yeah. elaborate fight scene that we'll, I'm sure talk about at length here and probably not as long as the fight scene actually is. Like, <laughs> oh, I sure hope not. It's like six <laughs> minutes long. Um, but, and it might be more tiring than the fight. Scene. <laughs> exactly. And in that, in that fight scene, uh, I guess I read somewhere Carpenter insisted on three particular wrestling moves to be incorporated in it. And if you ever watch oh, wrestling, you, you can totally yeah. recognize them. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's purposefully importing a lot of uh, this lowbrow aesthetic into what is a very serious economic critique. This is like deadly serious. It's a, the most bald critique of capitalism that you can even imagine being put on film. Right. Especially in the 1980s, I yeah. mean, I'm surprised a Mac some kind of, you know, Reagan, a Reagan, a McCarthyite type of person didn't come after him for this. It's, yeah. it's pretty, like you said, it's pretty straightforwardly against Reaganomic capitalism in the 80s, um, and I think that's Carpenter's genius. Personally, um, I know a lot of people really criticize him as being lowbrow, but. Yeah. Um, I think that's his, his genius is, is be in being able to communicate an intelligent idea to a popular audience in a way that a lot of other filmmakers can't, right? This isn't seventh seal, but it's, you know, it's still communicating something profound in, in its own pop level way. I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and there's something it probably wouldn't be tolerable if it were actually serious. Right. Um, and, and I think right. if it were seventh seal, it would be rolling our eyes at it. Right. But um, there's something about the way he um, undercuts the seriousness of this message with his, this camp that, I mean, I don't know if there's another way to say it. Um, he's obviously got a love of the kind of 
B sci-fi film of the fifties. And you see a lot of that aesthetic in here and we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of uses that cheesiness to his advantage in this movie. Uh, and, he uses and, it with a really clever deafness. Yeah. yeah I think. Yeah. And, and Roddy, not wanting to give him too much credit. Well, and Roddy Piper is just, uh, is pitch perfect in this movie. I think he, he's great. And, uh, and so I think that, um, We'll get into some of the more details about that, but this is a very fun movie despite its seriousness. And its seriousness is very much related to the 80s. I mean, uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA album, I mean, this kind of feels like a movie inspired by My Hometown or or songs like that, right? There's... In the way that Bruce Springsteen was very openly critical of Ronald Reagan, um, I think that, uh, that John Carpenter's film is as well. But it's a working man's critique. It's it's a it's a a union worker, like a factory worker. It's that that kind of critique, and that's what what makes Carpenter fun, right? It's not hot, this m- sort of Marxist analogy of you know the the dangers of capitalism. It's he, here's what it looks like on the street kind of critique, um, and manages to be wildly entertaining at the same time. <laughs> so and, and and you've made a really another great point for the use of pro wrestling, right? This is sort of a working man's performance art, right? Uh, and so uh, making use of that aesthetic to actually create the 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 material for the critique is actually kind of a brilliant move. I I, I think oh, I'm thought of that. John Carpenter is like a really underrated film and I think it's often the case that people don't realize how good one of his films are until like 20 years later and then they realize, "Oh my gosh, that movie is actually kind of great." Uh and, and so yeah, um this movie gets panned by critics when it first get gets released who don't quite understand it, I think. Um and uh and now it's seen as kind of a, a classic of the era. Um and we'll get to what it has to teach us today. But uh John Carpenter, we've already talked about like how many great films and what is sort of uh distinctive about his work. Do you have anything else to add to that conversation? No, I think um I think that probably probably covers it. Yeah, I th- I think that um he has this uh, kind of un- almost an unnerving restraint <laughs> about his work, right? And, and his sort of DNA, the DNA of his work crosses so many genres. If you think about influential filmmakers, John Garber has got to be at the top of most lists um, and maybe like in a, an underappreciated way. And if we want to talk about people have no trouble, trouble talking about like Woody Allen as the sort of auteur filmmaker genius. Right. And there's really in no way is John Carpenter's work. I mean, any less significantly, um, auteurish, whatever that term is, uh, if people still take that um, seriously. And as we said, that (laughs) DIY uh, aesthetic is just, uh, is all over his, his movies. Um, and one, uh, well, we'll get to recommendations at the end of the the show. So, um, I do have one recommendation of a movie that may not have seen, but you should. So, um, so, all right, let's move on then. Um, to touch on one more point about the, uh, the kind of punky lowbrow aesthetic <laughs> of this movie. Um, I, we talked a little bit already about how wrestling is perfect for that. And it reminds me, and I know if you're a longtime listener to the show, you're probably sick of me mentioning Leslie Fiedler's essay, Both Ends Against the Middle. Um, but I'm going to do it again. I, for some reason, because of the material we cover, maybe, uh, I, uh, it always finds its way uh, to be uh, relevant. And so the argument of that essay is about comics uh, in the 50s in which they're kind of under attack by you know people who think 
the, it's the, the book the seduction of the innocent is out and people that comic thinks that think that comic books are destroying the youth of America in ways that you later on see in video games and heavy metal and all that sort of thing. But in the fifties, this is what it looked like. Yeah. Yeah. He's making devil, devil horns at me over Skype here. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so that essay really kind of makes a compelling argument that what it, that the lowbrow um, has in common with the highbrow, things like Faulkner and you know Kafka and Proust and these sorts of highbrow art, um, is that they offend this middlebrow sensibility that just wants to consume their products and be happy and die, kind of right. <laughs> and so um, there's something about lowbrow art. Uh, and, and this is a perfect example of that that just sticks class in the face of the middle brow and it offends middle brow because it makes it um, oh, grapple with the existence of class distinctions, which the middle brow American doesn't want to admit exists. And, uh, and, and in the same way that William Faulkner's work does that. And I think that really applies to this, uh, to this movie in the, 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 the kind of lowbrow wrestling aesthetic of it, um, is like a, a, a middle finger <laughs> to middle brow asleep America. Right. I, I don't know if you want to spoilers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to like add on to anything about that. Um, I would, uh, I would agree with that. I think, um, and I think that's really well illustrated. I know we'll probably talk more about the, the uh, specifics of the film, but um, I was really thinking about this on on watching it last night. Is how quickly the character, the main character, um, shifts. Um, there's this one, uh, this really great scene early on where he's talking to his friend whose name I can't remember, um, and he's telling him, "I believe in America. If you, I follow the rules and I work hard, and I know it, it's just it's a matter of time it'll come, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's so mellow. He's so mellow through the first like 20, 30 minutes of the film, and then when he finds out that the game is rigged. <clears throat> and that that's not true he just snaps and it's like a well it's kind of it's a little bit like a little uh, uh working man's fever dream about what we're going to do to the man when <laughs> yeah <laughs> right but 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 he he snaps and 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 the change the shift was so extreme that i wondered if it was just a clumsiness in the acting but i i'm not so sure i kind of feel like carpenter was trying to make a point that um when the realization comes on a person that the game is rigged uh, um as as gr- gratuitously or grotesquely as it is um they're not going to have it. They're not going to have it, right? They're they're gonna they're gonna respond as strongly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And that um um that scene is actually interesting. I actually have it queued up here, and um, I want to play just a second of this conversation because it's between the the two main the two protagonists who are sort of friends, and like you said, Roddy Piper's character, who's unnamed Nada, is in the credits. What we have for him, John Nada or whatever. Um, but uh, he's sort of a believer in America, whereas the other guy, um, played by um, Keith David, is has this critique. He understands the, the rottenness of the system, and there's somehow they switch places by the middle. By and it's it's weird that. Um, uh, that Nada is the one that has to convince him of the truth that he already seems to know, right? And I want to get in, when we start talking about the fight scene, I think that's an important aspect of the fight scene. But here's just a little bit of that conversation. And there's a, a swear word I'll try to bleep out here. Uh, but 
I got a wife and two kids back in Detroit. Haven't seen them in six months. Steel mills were laying people off left and right. They finally went under. We gave the steel companies a break when they needed it. Know what they gave themselves? Raises. The golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rule. <laughs> they close one more factory. We should take a sledge to one of their factories. <laughs> you know, you ought to have a little more patience with life. Yeah, well, I'm all out. The whole deal is like some kind of crazy game. They put you at the starting line, and the name of the game is Make It Through Life. Only everyone's out for themselves and looking to do you in at the same time. Okay, man, here we are. Here we are. Now, you do what you can. But remember, I'm gonna do my best to blow your ass away. So how are you gonna make it? I deliver a hard day's work for the money. I just want the chance. It'll come. I believe in America. I follow the rules. Everybody's got their own hard times these days. Yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about, right? You have this um, optimism, um, despite reality, that Nada needs the glasses ultimately to see through the reality. And his friend, I think his name's Armitage, if I remember right. Um, uh, Frank, is that right? Um, but he, um, like, he knows the truth at the beginning and refuses to look through the glasses. And I think that's really interesting. Um, I don't know if you have any, um, any the- theories as to what he's, uh, I have a theory about it. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd love to hear your theory. I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't really think about the fact that he started out that way and that it did switch. I, I, I mean, it does definitely switch later. Um, I was just thinking that that um, Frank's critique is is a bit more of a conve- – it seems like a more conventional um, lo- lower class critique, right? Like a um, – he sees that the system's rigged, but he doesn't know how rigged, right? He's he he's he still uh, I think has some idea that he can at least provide for himself, even if he's not going to be moving up in the world, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a comfortable place too. I mean, it's not as as comfortable as middle class, but it's comfortable enough where you just don't want to make more trouble because at the very least you're you're able to do something. Um, it, it, it's only when he sees how extreme the game is rigged that he, you know, I don't know. Is that, is that kind of connected with what you were thinking or what, what did you, yeah, yeah. Your- no, it is. And, and I feel like not a, at the beginning, he's sort of voicing the kind of mainstream America, middle brow philosophy, right? That the system, you know, everyone has hard times, but if I work hard enough, I can get past these hard times and life will be fair to me if I do that. Right. And that's what everybody wants to believe. And Nada is by discovering these glasses, um, is, uh, kind of forced then to, uh, um, see the world in a way that directly challenges that. And that's where I'm getting back to the Leslie Fiedler's, um, both ends against the middle. Um, at one point, I want to play a little bit later on when we start talking about ideology and, and the of this. That uh, Slavoj Žižek has a, a really great 
reading of this movie in his film, A Pervert's Guide to Ideology, which I have a link to that in uh, in the show notes if you want to go watch it. It's actually, he's really funny to watch. I just can't get enough of watching his little twitches <laughs> and all that sort of thing, but he's entertaining as, as the movie. But. I, I had never listened to him before, and I watched that video, and I, yeah, <laughs> he was... Uh, he was uh, quite interesting. I, I understand now why he gets memed as much as he does. <laughs> yes, yeah, he totally deserves it. He's earned it. Um, but I think he may, maybe I'm remembering something we talked about in class, so this might be something that he says in that video. I'm getting them confused now. Um, but the elaborateness of that fight scene is, uh, and I think this is Zizek, is, um, is important like formally for the movie because like, Armitage, I think Armitage is what his name is. Um, Keith David's character, um, his um, um, he kind of knows what he's going to see when he puts those glasses on because he comes in, he starts the movie knowing that the system is corrupt and he doesn't want to look any further than that. And so um, he fights viciously to keep those glasses off his face, and that's what the fight is about. There's a six minute kind of really great fight um between these two men in the alley um and uh and and where roddy piper is trying to stick these glasses on his face so he sees the truth of the world and he's just violently refusing it uh and it actually kind of makes sense when you think about the fact that he kind of already has a sense that there's something beneath the surface that i just don't want to see because it's going to destroy the world for me right and and so he's fighting it so viciously which is a great justification for why you devote six minutes of a 90 minute. Um, it's almost 10% of the movie. It's like 7% of the movie is that fight scene. Right. Um, and, uh, six minutes of a 90 minute movie to, uh, a fight scene in the alley, because I think it formally adds something to the stakes, um, at seeing through the ideology. And all of this again is tied back to this kind of lowbrow aesthetic that this movie, by using the, the aesthetics of professional wrestling, um, he's actually doing something really interesting yeah i i I would i would um it's i mean it obviously it's meant to highlight um roddy piper's particular skill sets as well so i mean i know that there's again it's this weird tension that carpenter always seems to have between a serious point and pure lowbrow entertainment Mm -hmm. i mean and that's what it is it's lowbrow entertainment it's lots of fun because you're beating the crap out of each other um like Oh, there's one part where what are they? He goes after him with a board, yeah, and then the other guy like knees him between the legs about f- five times, and I'm like, that's not a real. <clears throat> nobody fights like that. It is. It, it was really quite funny, um, and entertaining, <clears throat> but at the same time, like you said, um, and like uh, Zizek said, <clears throat> it's making a point about how hard people will resist <clears throat> knowing what the truth is if the truth. Um, will be difficult. Yeah. Um, I think he even uses the word, uh, he says that being liberated, uh, Zizek, that is, says that being liberated is difficult and painful. He uses the word painful. And he says freedom hurts or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, freedom hurts because with freedom comes a responsibility to do something about the knowledge you now have, the perspective that you now have. Um, you aren't allowed to ride the fence anymore. And... Um, your your hand is forced. You're forced off the fence one side or the other, yeah. and that um, that means you have to make a moral decision. And it's much easier to be able to stand back and and not make that decision um, 
<clears throat> but everyone has a line where they're 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 forced to where they they can't they can't obfuscate any longer um and that's so he resists because he doesn't want he doesn't want to see it because he knows we'll have to do something about it yeah or become a collaborator as some characters in this movie do right um right and so you right. that that's the moral choice right you either have to resist or go along with it right and that's offensive to us you know middle brow folks out there who just want to enjoy our movies and and not have our football games ruined by kneeling football players and, and you know all the things that offend middle right. the middle brow i mean this movie goes out right. of its way to do by using the low brow right and not the high brow um zizek is bringing sort of a high brow in the way he can i suppose um uh reading of the movie but the movie itself strictly does this from the bottom and i, I think that that's just kind of a brilliant move um that it makes um, which is uh, it's perfect that a punk band um, they live exclamation point takes their <laughs> takes their inspiration from this movie. I, it's just a perfect uh, uh, yeah. turn of events. So um, um, it, it's, it might it might um, I don't know if there's much to this, but um, punk and heavy metal, which is sort of more my scene, they're both pretty related in terms of um, objectives. And I, I've been listening to some music lately that that would connect to the same themes. And it just reminded me that the same guy who introduced me to heavy metal music is the one who introduced me to John Carpenter. And I, <laughs> there's actually, I, I think there's a lot of overlap between those com- with between certain music communities and pop culture communities. Yeah. So science fiction, John Carpenter, horror films, that those genre films yeah. are really appealing to the same kind of people who listen to punk and metal and grunge and those, those kinds of things um I, I don't have much profound to say about that i just think it's interesting that you do see some confluence of um cultural sensibilities between those groups yeah. um yeah. so anyway they're, they're both kind of seeing and wanting to do the same kinds of things yeah uh, groups that are sort of at the margins of whatever straight society and uh and 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 therefore have that kind of marginal perspective through which to critique it, right? And so I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, and going back, one other thing, you were talking about how painful it is to emerge from ideology, as, uh, as Zizek will talk about. Um, uh, one of my students actually made a really smart com- uh, link to The Matrix. Uh, we had previously in, in the semester watched The Matrix, and when Neo is removed from the matrix it's gory and it's disgusting right and and uh and he goes through this sort of trauma of being pulled out of it um and and i think they just kind of smartly that's what um keith david's character is resisting right is the is the trauma of being (laughs) removed from uh uh from ideology so that you can see it right Uh, and when he finally sees it it's it's horrifying so yeah, I had some good students actually in that class. So, um, <laughs> that's great. That's a great insight. And, and you had actually made a perfect transition into our next topic here. Um, talking about genre, this film is kind of firmly. Uh, you can read it as a horror film, but it's kind of firmly a sci-fi film. And um, like, do you want to talk a little bit about the kind of tropes and motifs and some variations that you see? Sure. Um, so <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure what you call this in terms of subgenre. I mean, it's dystopian, um, yeah. but in a more subtle way than you would see um, with like a 1984 where, or Brave New World where it's really obvious. Um, <clears throat> the- thematically, it's definitely more along the Brave New World kind of lines where it's not some very obvious totalitarian regime mm-hmm. controlling things, but it's it's rather subtle. It's um, – uh, uh, in some ways very secretive and it's it's um, it's making you believe what it wants you to believe but it makes you want to to believe it right it makes you want to go along with rather than to resist um 
it's it's um, also in the vein of some um, some other cult science fiction films that fall along that same kind of vein of um, big secret, sort of dystopic, um, but underlying the surface. So Invasion of the Body Snatchers would be another one that's, that's very similar. Yeah. Um, uh, you might be able to tie some. You might be able to see some similarities between it and. Um, uh, Soylent Green, maybe, mm. right? With yeah. The big reveal at the end. You know, they're doing this thing that's that's exploitative and harming others, but um, you know, they need to resist that kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of along the lines of, like you said, those old B science fiction movies that are like cult classic type of movies. Yeah. Um, it's. <laughs> I kept thinking throughout that um, Bruce Campbell would have been a great. <laughs> person to insert into this film yeah Um, evil dead version of bruce campbell would have been just glorious uh, in a role like this but i mean (laughs) it is basically the role roddy piper's playing isn't it is this sort of hammy um everyman that is like this sort of muscle brown hammy everyman it's very much like a a bruce campbell uh, character that's actually a really great uh and so yeah it totally fits into what sam raimi's doing in the horror genre right with with uh with him um for sure um and and all there's one point you know when he puts the glasses on not only does he see like advertising and like kind of like when I was a kid, generic food and products, they were white with black labels um, before they, and they just said cereal or whatever beans, you know? Um, And, and so, and this is what all the, (laughs) this is what it all looks like when he puts it. So dehumanizing. It it is right. It strips it down to just the core message. Right. Um, And one of the other things that it does, and we'll talk about the advertising that he sees um, because that's part of the economic critique that this movie's making. That's where we're going next. But um, also when he, can see when he puts those on is the aliens who the aliens are and who's human and some of the cops are aliens and some of the cops are humans right and so he doesn't shoot the human cops uh when he can avoid it at least i think Uh, and then he does shoot the alien cops right and um and uh which is probably inflammatory in today's environment but you know that's one of the lessons this movie might um what isn't yeah yeah it's true (laughs) um but another thing he can see though are these little i guess drones i don't know that are floating around the city spying on on the citizens oh yeah and and they very much look like 50s ufo movie ufos they're they're disc-like little things that are moved by like stop motion animation it looks like right and so it kind of very much looks like something from like the day the earth stood still or something along those lines and so that's another like oh the way that this movie recalls those old movies from particularly the 50s those invasion movies right um yeah yeah and and i um there's also that that strong conspiracy theme um element theme that you would find in like a twilight zone or an x-files later yeah i i I, I, ha- I caught myself wondering um, a few times uh, if if um, if the X Files in particular had anything that it owed to Carpenter films, but particularly this one because thematically mm. it's very similar kinds of stuff, right? Shadow government, um, yeah. behind the scenes kind of things. Gosh, I would, um, which love... is a big thing in um, all through the Cold War era, really. Absolutely right. Um, and in this case, so uh, this is, I guess. In this case, it's not an invasion from the outside, though, right? This is sort of an internal conspiracy that's already arrived. And I think that that's what's really kind of interesting about this movie. Um, it does, it's structured exactly like those invasion movies. And you really smartly point out Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, which my class watched as well. Um, and, and they kind of made connections there too. And one thing I, I tried to point out is that, remember class, when we were talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, what was the 
what was the kind of symptomatic reading of that movie? Um, it's kind of this 1950s fear of communism and in, in the collective, right? Um, and so that invasion made this made communism basically this alien force that intrudes and destroys the natural state of, of earthly things, right? And this movie completely inverts that. It is capitalism that is this alien force that has come uh-huh. down and 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 spoiled this kind of pristine world, right? And so in, in the same way, in the way that it looks like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's almost like the negative of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and has taken that same structure and made it a critique of capitalism rather than of communism. And it's brilliant. I didn't pick up on that subversion at all. That's, yeah, that's that's great. That's a great point. And I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the. I mean, that's how neoliberalism works: is that people accept it as natural, right? And, and those sunglasses force you to see that it is not natural; it is alien, right? And and therefore can be changed with uh, with political action, right? And so this is a very radical movie, <laughs> in, uh, fitting with some you know themes that we've been hitting on here lately on the show. Not 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 least of which is the fact that when he does discover that something is wrong, he goes straight to brute violence. <laughs> he totally to does. Uh, there's no, no subtlety in the response there. There's no letters to the editor for sure. <laughs> no, no, he finds his way to a shotgun and walks into a bank. <laughs> And the famous just line. Just start shooting stuff. <laughs> yeah, he just starts shooting the aliens, right? You know, um, and starts shooting out his one-liners. The famous line, uh, of course. Do you want to say it, or do you want? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't. Uh, uh, I have, and he says it so formally too. Yes. That's the part I love best. Do you want me to say the cuss word? Is that okay? Yeah, why not? Yeah. He's, he says, "I have come to kick ass and chew bubble gum, and I am all out of bubble gum." <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then all the aliens are appalled you know not only because he's gonna shoot them but he's rude right and so um and and uh and yeah and so that's such a great line that everybody had heard but nobody knew where it was from in my class um and i read somewhere that 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 roddy piper who now let me talk about roddy piper for a second he was my Go favorite ahead. wrestler when i was a kid i had my locker full of pictures of him when i was like in eighth grade and and i i found recently he's digging through some family photos and i found some thanksgiving dinner or something and i'm wearing a roddy piper t-shirt <laughs> a sleeveless t-shirt at that. and, uh, and uh, i loved that guy and i don't almost never remember him actually wrestling uh, and when like when i was of age at least he always had this like talk show where he would torment other wrestlers right called Piper's Pit and uh and and he was just a great comedian and apparently he had this little book of one-liners to use on his his show and he just pulled that out and improvised it on the set and, and Carpenter kept it because it's so freaking brilliant right it's not it's not surprising I mean that the one-liners are the kind of thing that you do in pro wrestling right I mean yeah. Oh, yeah. he's way before he's way before my time I think um when I was of the age that I would watch pro wrestling it was I mean, I think The Rock was still around then, although he was transitioning out at that point, right? But like, um, so Roddy Piper's way before I think I was, because I was born in '86, so like yeah. this movie came out a couple years after I was born. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that is it, it's all swagger. I think that's it, it, that was the word I was looking for earlier, not swashbuckling, but swagger. It's just the swaggery kind of hero who is really rough around the edges, and the the, the one liners are just a part of that. They make it so much fun. Yeah, yeah, and and then the way that the movie kind of inverts and sub, subverts and inverts these tropes from sci-fi. I mean, he inverts and subverts 
these kind of uh, tropes of the action hero that we typically see, right? And and, and it's just it's it's wonderful casting. He's in another. He's in a few movies in the eighties. He was never. He never became a huge movie star. But there was one really cheesy movie. If you thought this one's cheesy, you should see Hell Comes to Frogtown. Um, that, that's a, a great. It's some post-apocalyptic movie where he's like the last fertile man on Earth or something, and they're trying to get him to across some enemy lines so he can whatever repopulate the world full of Roddy, oh Piper, Roddy Piper spawn. Yeah. <laughs> but so he's perfect. Oh, for this. I can't imagine why that never got remade. <laughs> it's actually kind of a fun movie if you could ever find it. Um, it and yeah, it owns itself too. Um, so, all right. So let's get into you know, some scenes. Uh, this movie is obviously making an economic critique. What are some scenes that you think are particularly, uh, you know, worth kind of thinking about and talking about? There we go. Sorry about that. Um, so I, I wrote down a f- handful of lines that I particularly thought were interesting um, uh, on this regard. Some were towards the beginning of the movie, some were towards the end. But um, when uh, <clears throat> I think the um, some of the things being said by the by the the sort of anti-alien propaganda group right oh. the, the rebel group that knows what's going on where they're sort of they're cutting into television waves so that they can try and tell people what what's really happening um uh, any a couple lines were in particular really interesting to me there, there was the, the 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 discussion that you played earlier between the two protagonists right that one is obviously really key but then um you hear them saying things like they're they're um they're uh, trying to create quote an annihilation of consciousness mm. Um, and then they want to keep us sedated and keep us selfish. Um, so there's these um, this idea that consumerism, the the the, the purchasing, and really um, blinds us, right? It, it it dulls our senses in a sense. Um, and then you've got this line: "There's a new morning in America," which is a clear slam on Reagan, <laughs> right on the Reagan era. It's just it's right in the face, it's right? N- like there's no no subtlety no at all back there. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, but I thought one of the most illuminating scenes in terms of the economic critique was at the end when they're going through the bunker area and that Texas businessman kind of comes out of nowhere and he's like, oh, I didn't know you guys were one of us that you sold out and let me give you the grand tour. It's like, okay, the, first of all, um, that guy should not have access to anything. <laughs> he's yeah. clearly not thinking straight. He's taking um, him to the most deepest, darkest secrets of all the aliens, right? And like explaining, it's almost like a villain monologue, except that he's really dumb. It's, it's, it's really pretty funny. Um, but he, he, he's talking about how, um, how um, these guys are free enterprisers. Yeah. These, these aliens are at this alien race. They're free enterprises. The earth is another developing world. Um, and I, th- I think he's the one who says like it's like a third world to them. Yeah. Right. And he's totally fine with it. And he's explaining it as if, guys, this is just the way things are. He says, and we all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team mm-hmm. because. Um. So so the idea is is that there's there's just not even really any reason to try and fight back because what would be the point? Um, we're all doing this anyway. Um, some of us are just more um, aware of it than others and able to, and when we are more aware of it, we can make more of a profit off of it. So it, it, it kind of targets capitalism as, <clears throat> and I mean, 
I don't think I'm nearly as socialistic as you, Danny. Um, (laughs) I I would consider myself a capitalist. At the same time, there is a sense in which capitalism is parasitic on um, people's sensibilities. It it, it does try to suck your attention and energies into it that without a a good dose of self-awareness and self-reflection – anyone can sort of be drawn into because of the benefits you reap from it. Yeah. Um, so it, it really just paints this picture at the end. And it's a little monologue, but he paints this picture at the end of, of, um, of how it functions and how without conscious reflection, you're going to get sucked into it and you're just going to be dull to it. And you're not going to be able to do anything about it because you're going to be too blind to it, too comfortable. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and I think that, I mean, this is a big tent show, right? I, I don't, <laughs> I have people from all across the political spectrum on this show, so that, that's not a problem for me at all. I'm pretty sanguine about it in general. I mean, I'm, I'm no, I'm no, I'm no uh, laissez-faire libertarian for sure. So <laughs> I know, no, no, it's what makes the show fun for me is the kind of uh, the big conversation that we have, and and uh, I, I don't like uh, you know the sectarian review is kind of a, a multi-layer. There's a lot of layers to the meaning of our name of our, and so one of the things I want to do is is review and and look cast a harsh light on sectarianisms of all sort of all kinds right and so um uh from you know an ostensibly sectarian perspective ourselves but so um so don't even worry about that and and in fact i think that w- after we talk about zizek here a little bit there are ways to critique capitalism from a non-marxist perspective as, as you've pointed you've discovered oh, so well, you've shown me somebody yeah. who had no idea existed and it's going to be a really great conversation addition to this conversation uh from a kind of a within orthodox christianity right um the same kinds of critiques can be made um about um our economic system from a non-materialist perspective right and so i think that that's one of the kind of brilliant things about this movie and your contribution to this conversation as well so um can i let me play just a moment of the beginning of zizek's uh critique of um of ideology in they live um and he actually and, and apparently this is true i read this the the alley kind of still looks like that where they're having the fight they're having a fight in near some dumpsters in la and apparently it still looks very much like that and i think zizek is actually there um for his his, yeah exactly that's what i was gonna say i gotta (laughs) finally a reason to go to la i gotta see this alley um and so uh yeah and so uh i think he's actually standing there in this video and i have the link to this in the show notes but yeah let's listen to the way zizek um describes ideology and that's what he's talking about I'm giving you a choice. Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. I already am eating from the trash can all the time. The name of this trash can is ideology. The material force of ideology makes me not see what I'm effectively eating. It's not only our reality which enslaves us. The tragedy of our predicament when we are within ideology is that when we think that we escape it into our dreams at that point we are within ideology okay and i think um that i love zizek right and so i I am already eating the trash can (laughs) the way 
he's every bit as entertaining as the movie right um it's almost like he cuts himself into the scene um and so you definitely go back and watch this it's like a what about a six minute little clip from his movie a pervert's guide to ideology or ideology and uh and so but what he's saying there is actually i think really pertinent um and, and so he's you know coming from a marxist perspective um that this system of the world um, kind of blinds us to its reality and we are kind of unable to see beyond that reality right and so these glasses become this means by which we're broken out of ideology um, for, for Zizek here and that's why he thinks this is such a brilliant movie um, and I think that uh, I think it's actually true you, you pointed to some scenes that, that show us the way that this movie kind of just dives into um, those kinds of uh, subtle passive controls that we just go along with and uh, without ever actually being forced to do anything. Our own desires are the things that keep us imprisoned, right? And, and I think that that's, uh, th- that's true of a Marxist critique of capitalism, but it's also true of a, of a kind of Christian critique of capitalism, right? And, and, and I think that this is something, this is a place where there's an intersection between these two competing ideologies. Yeah, and, and it's um, – I was thinking about this because, I mean, Carpenter doesn't really pose an alternative, right? He's not necessarily – as far as I can tell, um, I don't know enough about his politics to know what his positive critique is so much as, as what he, he's saying he doesn't like about the system as yeah. it is. Um, he's a great – he's one of those guys who's kind of like Orwell. He's really great at pointing out what's wrong, um, <laughs> even if he never tells you what the right thing to do is. Um but it reminded me of a, a, a quote that I'm sure a lot of people have heard from Alexander Solzhenitsyn that he writes in uh, the, the Gulag Archip- Archipelago, which I haven't actually read. But the quote goes something like this, um, and he's speaking of capitalism and communism both. He's saying that um, that um, <clears throat> the line of um, good and evil does not cut through between capitalism and communism. The line of good and evil cuts through every human heart yeah. right um paraphrase slightly there so so the idea is that these ideologies are exactly that ideologies and they're human and they're formed by humans and they are not ultimate they're not eschatologies they're not um they're not teleological or they shouldn't be right yeah. they're tools their systems are tools that we set up but they are not ultimate in and of themselves and when we make them ultimate then there's that one seat at the magazine um the magazine stand where he's looking at the money with the glasses on and says this is this is your god or i am your god yeah, yeah. the money says yeah the dollar bills um that's where you end up if you make one of these ideologies so static that it can't be challenged that, yeah. that you can't even imagine that there's an alternative um, shows a lack of imagination first of all and second of all shows that you're more beholden to that than you are to um well for a christian to to our faith but but just for anyone to truth right it's where ideology becomes idolatry right there's sort of a you know right. a, a synonym almost there um and, and actually what you're saying it came up last week nathan gilmore uh, on the last episode we talked about infinity war um and so we were talking about thanos as this kind of neoliberal sort of figure and uh and he um uh nathan drew a, i mean he how did he say it it was i think it's hard to attribute 
the, either to Zizek or Frederick Jameson, but the quote is, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? And, and so, uh, and, and I think that this lack of imagination is, is it's coming up again in this movie, right? Um, is that it just seems so pervasive and so natural, there's no way to imagine it not existing. Um, and this movie's trying to make the case that it is an alien importation into the human experience, right? Uh, and therefore can be changed with the right, um, political movement and, and in this case there's sort of a, a basically a terrorist group that uh, what we would call a terrorist group you know if they weren't the good guys right and so uh, they are they are working to put the truth out through the media and and at the end nada dies blowing up the satellite system that is deceiving the world and once that satellite's gone everybody can see the aliens and the advertising all over the place right and uh, and there's one the last scene with the woman in bed <laughs> with the man it's right at the end of the movie it's like one of yeah, the most and, awkward and, and, endings it, and it did so well up until that point i remember watching it last summer because i hadn't watched it in probably a decade and i watched it like what the heck was that i mean leave it to john carpenter to go out on a joke though it was right? a total <laughs> joke yeah it almost had to end in that way but this is this is the resolution that's the way that we can imagine a world without capitalism right and so um but like i said before and i want to you know start pushing towards the end of the show i'm trying to keep these towards an hour when i can and <laughs> i think this is an episode we can and uh uh i think that there are uh, non, like I said, Marxist, non-materialist ways of making the same kinds of arguments. One that comes to mind for me is uh, James Smith. I recently got to see James Smith talk where I met Neil uh, Gusman, uh, our mutual friend, Carter. I uh, actually got to sit next to him in a, a discussion yes, yes. With, with James Smith. That was kind of awesome. And, uh, and so as we were um, and tom becker and tom was there as well you used to go to church with both of them so <laughs> did you go to, oh that was a great church if that's the church you uh, you attended that seemed just lovely so um but uh in lancaster if you're ever there um what was the name of that church i forget were they at wheatland yes that was it yes yeah, wheatland yeah um, and it's lancaster I, I have to correct you so that next time you go there they don't <laughs> run you out of town they're pretty particular about that those dutchy <laughs> Dutchy East, uh, West Pennsylvanians. I, everyone, I'm from Cleveland and I mispronounce everything. I, we have the worst accent in the world. And so I, I've just owned that. And so, yeah. Fair um, enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not even ashamed at this point. So, um, so, uh, but James Smith was talking, I mean, his project, the Cultural Liturgies Project, is essentially you doing what Zizek is trying to do with looking at this movie without using kind of a Marxist basis for it. Right. He's talking about the way our desires are shaped by the everyday, small little everyday practices that we, um, that do that train us in how to actually perceive the world. Right. And so, um, going to a football game, for example, and we all stand up and pay homage to the flag. We salute the soldiers. There's this, this uh, ideology, if you will, of, of patriotism that's sort of built right into that, that we then um, take with us to other places that we go, right? And so his, um, his critique is, or his advice, I guess, is one about, is more, it's less materialist in some ways, but in some ways it's not. He wants us to go to churches, basically, where there are counter liturgies that stand in the way of these other things so that they don't seem natural, right? And so the the glasses in some ways are a counter liturgy for, for Nada, right? He's able to then see the world from a different perspective. And that's kind of, you know, what we're all in, you know, Smith's 
you know, advocation is for us all to um, find a way to actually notice our surroundings and notice the things that our little everyday practices are doing to us, right? Uh, and what most people are unable or unwilling to do because it is painful, right? It's a fight in the alley. It's a six-minute butt-kicking in the alley. Um, and uh, the uh, what most people are unable to do, though, is actually remove themselves from those the comfort of that day-to-day practice to see it for what it truly is. And so Smith is actually, I think, kind of making the same argument that Zizek is making, but just from a non-Marxist perspective. And, and it uh, sounds like that. To, it sounds like that to me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I haven't read that, that text by, by Jamie Smith, although it's on, you know, it's on the ever growing list. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, it, um, it really is, um, <clears throat> easy for us to compartmentalize i think our our lives christians are, are just as good as it is anyone and and we often don't think of our faith uh, whether ritualistically or in in terms of personal um behavior as necessary i mean we we give lip service to the idea that it affects the other areas of our life but i'm not sure we're actually good at that yeah. um we have a we have a tendency to divorce it here in in the states anyway um <clears throat> and what that allows us I feel like to do is is accept those things unquestioningly um, and provide justifications for them that we might not otherwise if we were formed differently. Um, but you know, if fish doesn't know it's in water. I guess is is how the saying goes. Yeah, and that's you know kind of a oblique reference to the David Foster Wallace graduation speech. Um, this is water, right? Which I think Smith has actually written about um, David Foster Wallace, like in 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 glowing terms. So that you are identifying you know, something somewhere else that is also part of this conversation, I think. Um, now, this is what's exciting about the show. And if anybody's listening still, I hope you are, because um, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I think it's great. But um, please, like, get in touch with me. And uh, I learned so much from you guys. I feel like I am someone without really any, any real talents or skills. I think the only thing I'm really actually good at is being a bridge between actually interesting and smart people. And, uh, and so that's what the show is here for. So if you are one of those people who are, uh, have something interesting to say, um, shoot me some ideas because Carter in uh, agreeing to do this, he's just, um, uh, introduced me to this other thinker, William Kavanaugh. Right. And I, and I think he's also speaking again, not from a Marxist perspective, but making the same kind of critique. And here's a way in which Marxists and, and Christians have a, a place to hold hands temporarily. Right. And, actually do some work together so do you want to talk a little bit about um kavanaugh and how he relates to this educate everyone else as you have me <laughs> well i don't know about that but i can at least try and provide a little bit of an introduction to him um so william kavanaugh is a roman catholic theologian and ethicist who writes a lot about political theology um and i was reading a book recently for a class um that he wrote that um is deals with um, consumerism and desire and basically, he's making an Augustinian critique of capitalism in the book. So he's drawing from Augustine's categories to um, to critique. Well, he's not, I shouldn't say he's critiquing capitalism as such. He's not an economist, and he's, he doesn't claim in the book at all to be doing economics. That's what's kind of interesting is he's not – he's neither tearing – down nor building up an economic system. But what he is doing is critiquing the consumeristic um, proclivities that capitalism encourages. Um, so basically what he's highlighting is how capitalism, we, uh, um, or our con- I, I guess just to say, say consumerism, because that's the word he uses, yeah. that the consumeristic society, which is generated by capitalism, I mean, sure. obviously, <laughs> um, 
<clears throat> how it, it it essentially is directing our desires in the wrong way. Um, so his thesis is essentially that human freedom is only we're only really free when our desires are directed towards the will of God. Um, and so as he understands it with the free market, the free market's not actually free unless the agents within it are, uh, have their desires directed towards God. Um, it, it's not free simply because you can act without, um, without coercion. Yeah. In fact, he makes the point, he takes Milton Friedman on, you know, the classic capitalist, um, thinker and he says um in in freedom and freedman's way of describing it we're all just sort of free agents operating and the economy works best when we can all just do our own thing he says um what's lacking there is a is a true telos a, mm. a true objective um and he says when you don't have a, a a telos or an objective that stands beyond um uh, uh, stands beyond the the economy itself um then you're left with um I have a quote here. He says, you're left with de- um, you, to desire with no good other than desire itself. Yeah. Like, so the only thing you're desiring is really desire itself. And essentially what he says is without a telos, we can't work towards anything together. We're, but what we find ourselves in is simply caught in a competition of wills. Um, so it effectively becomes Nietzschean, yeah. right? Because we don't have a common goal. We just have our own freedom yeah. and air quotes there. Um, and that freedom then is going to co- immediately start coming into conflict with other people's freedom. And it's all about who's strongest yeah. and can gain for themselves what they want. Um, consumerism then, it, the problem with it is that it feeds that. <clears throat> it encourages through things like advertisement and through a constant um, production and even a constant innovation, not saying that innovation is wrong, but that innovation in the wrong ways is, is harmful. It's just innovation for innovation's sake to feed c- consumption yeah, for it, consumption's sake. It leads and and fi- when you don't, it leads to fidget right. spinners. <laughs> right, right. And, and w- like with Augustine, you have this, like this distinction between, um, um, uh, Oh, what is the distinction? Basically, um, things you have things to use, um, but they don't. You don't have them to use for their own sake. You have them to use in order to bring you more in conformity to God's will. Um, <clears throat> so, what Kavanaugh is um, talking about is essentially saying um, that if you can't, that uh, consumerism tends to create things on purpose that exist for themselves and so and and um and then we tend to lean into that purchasing them to fulfill desire but the problem is that once you've purchased it the desire is sated and then you despise the thing and have to move on to something else and so the cycle of consumption is perpetuated and growing and growing and growing to the point where we don't care um we don't care who's harmed in the production of a thing because we're separated from the means of production in the first place. Yeah. Um, I'm not seeing people suffer. They're across the world suffering so that I can wear cheap clothes and, and eat cheap food and things like that. Um, <clears throat> and so um, this deadening of our this deadening of our perception and this blindness of what's really going on um, is I, I think he, he provides a really good theological critique outlining um this like you said the same thing that it's blinding us to what's really going on and we let it because we want it yeah. because it it's um it's what's 
what's the word you would use of a drug? It's um, not cathartic, but something along those lines, right? It, it's, it gives us a temporary release, mm-hmm. and that temporary release is cheap, but we still like it, and it's easier than the hard one, the hard one work of the pursuit of God yeah. um, um, with our consumption. Yeah, um, a couple of quotes from Adorno actually come to mind. I think Adorno uh, for both of these, but you know, we have freedom to choose what is always the same. First of all, right? This is sort of like a false freedom that we um, are experiencing, but we experience it as freedom, and therefore we love it, right? Um, and then um, the other one is uh, a wrong life cannot be lived rightly, right? There's no, there is no way to correctly navigate consumerism without obviously knowing what you're doing without doing without overcoming it somehow right uh and and so yeah i think that this is a a couple of um you know going back to another marxist a frankfurter um but uh the um um and i'm reminded of the scene when he first puts the glasses on um and and i think really relevant to this conversation we've shifted into the religious aspect of this as well and it is really interesting and one of my students and i wish i could remember who i'd credit them um we have popcorn conversation sometimes and I can't remember who says what but um, made the observation that it's he finds those glasses in a church right um, there is a church that is um, housing this revolutionary group and, and that's where he kind of sneaks in and finds the glasses so there is something about the the resources of the church that are helping him do his Marxist work right and so that's a, a really inter- another interesting intersection here um, between the, the two competing ideologies again um, that don't that have that have something in common um, and um, and so when he first puts them on though he walks down the street and he looks at all the advertising and it's really an interesting thing and it's in the future after i have taught this i realized i should have been doing this all along when i teach rhetoric when we do our visual analysis i'm going to show this scene because this is essentially what i'm asking them to do you're looking in an ad i want you to tell me what it actually says underneath it right um get look beyond what it's fooling you into thinking like what is it actually saying and that's what he's doing when he puts these glasses on and there's one in particular and some of them say sleep consume you know you know the money says that i am your god or this is your god or whatever um but there's one there's like a vacation to the bahamas or something and it's a woman yes yes classics yeah (laughs) yeah a woman in a bikini right and and when he puts the glasses on it says marry and reproduce right and so this that's a perfect example, though, of pursuing sexual desire, right? This is going to make me happy, right? But what it's actually doing is perpetuating the system, right? Um, you are actually unknowingly, your desires have nothing to do with it. Your desires are what's fooling you into actually doing the thing that is oppressing you. And from the, mar- I, I personally think marriage, marriage and reproduction is okay, but I get the point of the movie here, right? I'm for it too, but. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. not if it's just to per- to create more consumers. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you're just creating more consumers to feed the system so it can continue to self perpetuate, then you're 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 doing nothing at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> doing it, it wrong. <laughs> exactly, and uh, yeah, and um, and actually, incidentally, this show is sandwiched right between two episodes about Infinity War and the second one that's coming up the next week. Uh, the first one we get into this a little bit, but it, it really is, um, you know, we do talk about like consumption as you know a problem well thanos wants to 
you know, eliminate half the universe, basically so people continue to consume like they do now instead of changing the way we consume and, and, and make the resources, you know. And so we were doing a whole other issue or episode on that, focusing on the Pope's um, encyclical about um, consumerism and the environment and stuff. So, Oh, Laudato Si, that's a great, yeah, that's yeah, a great, yeah. I'm, that, cool, I'm yes. glad you're touching yeah. on that. Yeah, that's we'll be doing piece. that uh, next week, listeners. So, um, but yeah, let me, uh, and I do have a clip from uh, William Cavanaugh here um, that kind of uh, says, what Carter just said, but I think it's worth uh, worth hearing it from the man's mouth himself here. And this is from uh, some YouTube channel, and I can't remember the name of it. I have linked to it in the show notes, though. Isolation. When is a market free? You know, when does an exchange um, lead to the flourishing of the consumer, the producer, all of the different parties involved? What we've been sold is freedom. I don't think really is freedom. I think it's it's alienation in a lot of ways. You know, we've been sold on the idea, for example, that you're a failure if after you retire you live with your kids. You know, I mean, in most of the world, throughout most of human uh, history, you want to be with your family. Extended families were a kind of richness of life, and now you have to amass this massive retirement account so that you can avoid living with your own family. Why? I mean, why is has that become uh, uh, And I think that that's just a really insightful um, comment. And I'm really thankful, Carter, that you uh, directed me in this guy's work. I'm going to totally find his books now. And uh, because I think he's saying very similar things to both Smith and Zizek here. And in fact, he uses a Marxist term alienation, right, to uh, to describe what he's talking about. But this is a place of, of uh, coincidence here. Uh, my understanding is that he's actually a Christian anarchist. So oh. um, I'm not sure how Roman Catholic pulls that off, but <laughs> who knew such a thing? I'm, I'm willing to, <laughs> I'm willing to explore more. <laughs> yeah. A, a Roman Catholic anarchist is uh, like, that just blows my mind. I'm going to have to, uh, we have to do a show about that sometime. If anybody knows anybody that anything about that, let me know. We'll do a, we'll do a whole episode. Uh, well, let's like push towards the end here. We are going over an hour a little bit again, sure, sure. Um, but 30 years, this movie has been released 30 years ago. Right. And, um, what are some contemporary lessons that we can take? It feels as fresh today. I know that, uh, oh gosh, somebody, Brandon Gerbrock, I think, um, commented on the Facebook page that he's afraid the film doesn't hold up as much as he, when he loved it when he's a kid. And I think it does. I think that the fact that it owns its cheesiness, I think it totally holds up. And, and in fact, it feels fresher now and than it may have even then. And so what are some ways in which this movie can teach us things today? Um, just really quickly on that point again another that's another great gift of carpenter is that he's willing he's able to own his camp better than anybody oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which and and he owns it in a way that makes you it just makes it even more appealing yes it's not um, a disadvantage but, for him right it's an advantage <laughs> and he uses it yeah uh you know and i didn't even think um i, didn't, I was gonna mention this but i didn't even mention the cowboy um uh, theme, thematic sort of things lying under this the drifter walk it comes into town and just tries to stay quiet and stay out of trouble but um, circumstances don't allow him to and he has to um, yeah. then become the, the person to save other people um, so I thought that was uh, just on a genre note kind of another interesting piece um, in terms of contemporary critique I don't think we become less consumeristic um, at least not generally, although there are pockets. Um, <clears throat> I think um, 
this film is is a little bit bonk bonk on the head um, in terms of message. It's yeah. not necessarily going for subtlety. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no way. So it's not a movie that prescribes very well. Um, I'm I'm not sure it's get you know it's not like it's encouraging people to you know be more localist in their economics, right? It's it's not going to those kinds of um, prescriptive elements. What it does do well though is describes very well. Um, what the danger actually is <clears throat> and that it is present. I mean, in the movie, it's fairly straightforward. You've got a billboard and then you have to put the glasses on and it says the thing that it's trying to say, right? Yeah. It says obey or sleep or consume. Um, what's harder is, of course, looking at actual advertising and seeing that propaganda propagandized element to it that they're trying to direct your desires to do something um, because th- and they appeal to your baser human nature, right? It's going to make you more beautiful, desirable, um, smarter, whatever, right? Um, and then the 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 um, simply the idea that that we've got this meritocracy. Yeah, um, I don't think that idea has died, and it's probably not going to die anytime soon. The idea that if you just work hard enough and do your part and follow the rules, you'll succeed. Even for, for a capitalist, I just don't buy that. I mean, come on, um, the 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 levels to which wealth is centralized in various entities, particularly large corporations, just makes that um, just. I mean, uh, to me, that makes that just kind of silly, right? I mean, you may get to a certain level by hard work and innovation or whatever, but generally, it's a crapshoot and uh, accident of birth a lot of the time um and when it's not an accident of birth it's it's just a roll of the dice to to who's gonna get where so i mean um lots of people work hard and um not a lot of them are rich so um i think it's fair to say that those business interests prey on people by appealing to them in certain ways and um people like to think that that could be them and so they, they, um, it, we're, we're more willing to buy into something when we think it could be us, especially middle class, right? Yeah. Middle class people are, are, are always so comfortable because they feel like they could at least plausibly become a part of the richer class. Yeah. So, which is why they're rarely revolutionaries. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> um, that, that's, I think those messages are, are pretty, um, I think powerful and, and will continue to be powerful for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that, um, um, in addition to that, I would add that the, the need for glasses, we need, we all need, we're all stuck. And this film it too is stuck in, it's blind to some of its own shortcomings, right? I think oh, that sure. there's a pretty powerful feminist critique to be made of this movie. And that, um, I mean, the one female character turns out to be a traitor, right? I mean, and so, I mean, the, this movie is in itself, um, kind of a, uh, a, um, uh, blind to some of its own shortcomings. It, it sees it, it has as much machismo as as yes. a wrestling match. Absolutely, there's a definitely a paternalistic um, aspect to this movie. Um, I'm not saying that makes it a bad movie, but I'm just saying we all have these blind spots, right? No matter what glasses we put on, there's going to be something that we're blind to. Which we could probably critique the violence too. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you wanted to, although I I, I would say that that actually serves an ethical purpose in this case and in, in that it's trying to, uh, to shake us from it's, it's the, our version of, of being shaken from our, from our normality. But, um, but even when we are good at doing this, there's always something that we're going to be blind to, right? The movie itself, as I said, has these kind of 
significant uh, gender problems, right? That are, are worth, I'm not, it's not worth trashing the movie for, but it's worth knowing that it exists, right? And, uh, and, and in addition, I think in our current age of distraction, I mean, with smartphones and um, this is the, I mean, these are the, the forces that are shaping us and Twitter, I mean, if you do all of your activism on Twitter, it's easy to kind of be blinded to the fact that you're not really doing anything but screaming into a void, right? Um, and, and creating um, other, you know, creating other sort of emotional problems for other people. You're part of this other economy um, of, of Twitter. And, and what, if you think that that's actually some sort of, you know, hashtag resistance sort of activism, then, I mean, that's a blind spot there too. And, and it's made possible through current technologies that didn't exist in the eighties when this was sort of, uh, when this was being made. So as technology which, increases, which makes it much more dangerous, it does. It's so much more like immersive. Like we're just sort of, um, uh, you talk about water, the water metaphor, right? We're just, I mean, it's just a more invisible kind of water that we're all in right now. And it's difficult work to try and make yourself aware of these shortcomings, right? And I think this is where Zizek, along with James Smith, along with um, uh, Kavanaugh, can um, sort of help us, you know, the, the person who wants to, you know, have their butt kicked in the alley, you know, in order to be able to see. I mean, I think there's something something good about that. And so, uh, and so, yeah, I think that this movie has aged really, really well. And I am, uh, uh, uh totally, totally happy, uh, to have spoken, uh, with you about it, uh, today, Carter. Um, I do want to take, uh, a recommendation. You, you had one for me. Sure. Yeah. And thank you again, Danny, for let, bringing me back on the show. I, I always love doing this. This is really fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, I had uh, one recommendation. It's actually William Kavanaugh. It's a little booklet. It's about 100 pages that he wrote called um, Being Consumed. And it, that's his book on um, economics and desire. Um, again, he's not writing it as an economist. He's not claiming to be an economist. He's a theologian who's trying to help Christians think better about economics. Um, and so I highly recommend that little work by, uh, by Kavanaugh. And I'm totally going to look it up. I, f I have a feeling as I think more about, you know, my life and these issues, that's sounds like it's going to be a really important um, you know, place for me to, to go. And so I, I'm really, really excited to, to find that. And I'm very grateful for you coming on the show and, and you know, being your smart self and, uh, and introducing me to things I didn't know and, and bringing this awesome perspective. Uh, I really appreciate it. And you're always welcome back. Anytime you have an idea, just let me know. Um, we can do a, a whole nother John Carpenter movie if you want. So. <laughs> That I will do. I was planning on watching the things uh, sometime this week. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, great one. Um, and and so my other my recommendation is going to be the fog. I don't know if that's that's kind of a it's his follow up to Halloween, and uh, and and like Halloween, it's got this sort of understatedness to it, but a really really great movie. Shockingly great. I was shocked at how um, how really transfixed I was by this movie. It, it's wonderful, uh, and uh, and so I highly recommend going seeing the fog. The remake of the fog eh, i think he had some production credit there but that's not the one to go see go watch the original one from the oh 80 i think the late 70s early 80s so um carter stepper and i'm uh, and thank you again to uh not only carter stepper but to uh, they live exclamation point let me pull them in here a little bit uh thanks for letting uh, us use your song today it was a perfect fit for what we're talking about uh, go check them out i have links to all their lots of their stuff on the show notes and uh i'm gonna finish out the show by uh listening to them thanks everybody and uh join us again next time <laughs>